listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Well, good morning. I am so delighted that you're here. Welcome to the second service of our gathering, our commemoration of Resurrection Sunday. My name is Eric Barton, and I get to pastor the downtown campus of Bethel Bible Church, and I am delighted that you're here. We believe that God and His sovereignty and His grace has divinely directed and appointed your steps that you would be here this morning which means we believe that God's got a word for every single person in this place this morning. And so it's been our prayer as we've been preparing and planning that you would be able to hear, that you would receive what God has for each and every one of us. So I want to go ahead and get the obvious out of the way. Those of you who attend down here normatively will notice that today, uncharacteristically, I have this shiny piece of fabric around my neck drooping down my front, and it's a part of an ensemble. It's called a suit, I'm told. And as I was walking my way up the staircase this morning, working my way up, wheezing my way up, it was sort of like this grand hazing ritual where on every flight of stairs, there was someone there going, whoa, he's wearing a suit, whoa, he's wearing a suit. And I'm thinking, do I normally just wear burlap? Is that the deal? But okay, I'm wearing a suit. And they said, why are you wearing a suit? And my answer is always the same. It's the same every year because I always wear a suit to a funeral. I always wear a suit to a funeral. And this morning, as we gather to commemorate, contemplate, and consider the resurrection of Jesus, Easter is a funeral for death. Death itself has died. Now, when I wear a suit to a funeral normally, I wear dark colors because I want to honor the deceased. I want to be respectful to the family that is grieving, but this is not that kind of funeral. We wear bright colors because this funeral gives forth life. This funeral is the end of the thing that man intuitively and instinctively fears. Because of this funeral, the death of death itself, many new lives have come from this single death. That's why we're here to be a product of the resurrection of Jesus. So I want us to see a brand new creation that was thousands of years in the making, and it will go on for all eternity. I'm going to ask you, if you would, if you've got your Bibles, to turn with me to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. As Matt mentioned, we have been studying this week our reason to rest during Holy Week all about what took place that significant week. On Wednesday, we had a Passover Seder to see that Christ is symbolically uh, demonstrated throughout the Passover. On Friday, we came together and we had a Good Friday service in which we talked about the crucifixion of the Christ, which was appropriate because all spring semester long, we've been studying through the Bible in the Old Testament, the life of King David, this warrior, poet, shepherd, and king. And this King David, a thousand years before the coming of Christ, wrote the inspired hymn book for the nation Israel, the Psalms. And one of the Psalms he wrote was Psalm 24, in which he asks a really penetrating question. Psalm 24, verses three and four, he says this, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? 
He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Two nights ago on Good Friday, we answered that question. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Well, there's only one, only one, because not one other has ever been found to be righteous, to be pure of heart, to be clean of hands, to never have spoken a deceitful word. And the only one that could was, except that he was led up a hill and he was crucified and he died. The author of life was murdered. We also looked at the story of Barabbas, the rebel, the insurrectionist, the seditionist, who was supposed to have been in the center cross, but is instead freed, let loose. And he looks to that beaten, battered, and bruised Jesus, and he realizes, that should have been me. And that really is what we said was true receipt of the gospel, understanding the good news of our faith is that I'm the one who is worthy and deserving of being in that position. But this resurrection morning, I hope that we'll all walk away with the understanding of what we're here to do is to celebrate the end of death itself because Easter is a funeral for death. The thing that was caused by man's sin, death, and every human being that has ever lived has instinctively and intuitively feared has been defeated. So we're going to begin looking in Matthew, his final chapter, Matthew chapter 28. And I need to bring you up to speed a little bit on what's been going on. We finished on Good Friday talking about the crucifixion of Christ, that the plot to convict Jesus of a crime went 0 for 7 from religious court to civil court and back and forth and back and forth. They tried over and over again to hand down an actual offense worthy of death, and they never could. It went 0 for 7, and yet they crucified him anyway. Until finally two very wealthy men, one named Joseph of Arimathea and another one named Nicodemus, are finally emboldened. And they're so horrified because they do believe that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the promised Messiah, long foretold throughout the entire Old Testament, and yet he has been killed, shamed, brutally put to death. And so they go to Pilate at the end of chapter 27, and they say, can we please take down his body before the Sabbath, 6 p.m. on Friday? Can we take down his, bo his body so that he is not desecrated? And Pilate gives them permission. Now, it's been thought that the way you take down a person from a crucifixion is to lower the cross itself. Not possible. Unless you are the Roman soldiers that put it up, you cannot remove the beams. And so we know what they would have had to do is they would have had to have gotten a small little makeshift ladder and leaned it up against the vertical beam of the cross or perhaps even a little stool or a chair and go up to the cross. And there is this man who never said a deceitful word, who never evidenced anything other than a pure heart and clean hands, who was good all the time. And look what we have made of him. Beaten, scourged, bruised, battered, and bloodied. And the way you remove a body from a crucifixion at the risk of being overly graphic and grotesque, I'll try not to be. But you cannot remove the spikes. They're in the beams. They're not going anywhere. The Romans will do that later. You have to get up on the little stool, and you have to reach that first arm, and you have to pull it off. And now that arm 
is draping on you. It's all over you. And you have him, you're supporting his weight, and you have only but to reach over now and grab the other one. And you have to remove that. And now his whole weight, his head, his torso that has been essentially skinned falls on you. And you support him grotesquely as you get down on the ground and you remove his feet from the beams. And quite literally, you are covered in the blood of Jesus. And by the way, that's the story of the gospel. Recognizing that it is my sin, my guilt, my shame, my error, all of my bad choices, even the, even the ones in the secret that placed him there. And to have any sort of part with God, to have any sort of right standing before a holy God, I have to be covered in the death and the blood of Jesus. Now, clearly, I'm not physically there 2,000 years ago, but that's what we mean by faith. And Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus take this broken body of Jesus, and it's all over them. And they wrap it only temporarily because the sun is almost setting, and they place it in a new tomb, that tomb that was reserved for Joseph of Arimathea. It is Joseph's way of saying, I'm all in on this deal. I will forever be identified. One day I will die, and they will place me in there with him. But even Joseph and Nicodemus don't understand. The Jewish leaders go to Pilate, and they say, hey, we have a problem. We know that that man Jesus claimed to be a prophet, and then on the third day he would rise again. If that happens, we're going to have a problem, you think? And so please place a stone over the tomb and make it illegal for anyone to move it because the first deception was bad when he claimed to be God, but the second deception, if he claims to have risen again, will be much, much worse. And so Pilate says, you have guards, go and do whatever you want to do. And so they place a Roman seal across the tomb and they station guards. Matthew now picks up in his telling in Matthew 28 and verse 1. Now, after the Sabbath, so it's after 6 p.m. on Friday, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn <laughs> of the first day of the week. Now, you sort of have had to read all of the gospel of Matthew in one sitting to really appreciate the impact of what Matthew is doing. All through the gospel, 18,000 words in the gospel of Matthew, he's always said, on the third day, on the third day, on the third day. He quotes Jesus saying, tear down this temple, I will rebuild it on the third day, on the third day. But now Matthew shifts gears and he says, ah, it's not about the third day anymore. Now this is the first day because the resurrection of Jesus is not merely someone came back to life. No, 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 no. The resurrection of Jesus is a re-creation. It is a redoing of all that has been a mess, all that has been broken, all that has been chaotic and dark and void. It is a re-creation. We must not think that God had his son Jesus and he merely came back to life. That's too small of an understanding. The resurrection of Jesus is a re-creation Oh, and I'll show you more. On the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. That's pretty bad when you go down for 2,000 years and you're only known as the other Mary because it's the most common name in all Israel, Mary. It's Miriam, like the big sister of Moses. Everybody who's a girl essentially is called Mary. And so there's like eight different Marys in Scripture, really original. Mary and Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Now, with all due respect, 
these two women were essentially nobodies. They're not mentioned uh, to be married. Perhaps they're widowed or their husbands are men of zero consequence. The other Mary, all we know is that she has two sons. That's all we know about her. But Mary Magdalene, now she was a piece of work. This Mary Magdalene was from a village called Magdala. That's what Magdalene means, is she is from the village of Magdala. It's in the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. It was a rough place. Magdala literally means tower. And so we know that it was a Roman garrison that was stationed there. It was a fishing port. So that's right. She grew up in a town full of sailors and soldiers. Probably not the most moral place. It was a rough place. It was a backwater. And this is where she's from. And yet somehow this single woman with no family has plenty of income with which to fund and finance the ministry of Jesus. Luke 8 tells us that she regularly supported financially the ministry of Jesus, which has led many people to say since she was not married and she was from Magdala, a town full of soldiers and sailors, that she was a prostitute. She might have been. But the text does not ever say that. I can't explain where her other income comes from, but the text does not say that. But even if she was, that's the least of her problems because the other gospels are all in agreement that she is demon-possessed. She is possessed by not one, not two, not three, but by seven demons. Seven unclean spirits torment this poor woman. Her life is an absolute catastrophe. Her whole existence is one big spiritual void and darkness. Let's see, a giant chaotic void and darkness. What does that remind me of? Oh, that's right, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning. Ha, ha, ha. The first day. That's creation. And Mary Magdalene gets to experience a redemptive recreation. She is, in a sense, the encapsulation, the embodiment. She's the nutshell of the chaos and the void that existed before God said, let there be. And because of the resurrection, he again speaks into her life and says, let there be. She had been with Jesus all along in his ministry, at his crucifixion, at his burial. And now she comes back to his tomb to honor him in death. These two Marys showed up an expectation and an anticipation of seeing a place. But instead, <laughs> they see a person. Which just convicts me and reminds me this morning. Many of you perhaps showed up this morning to experience and to see a place. But it has been my prayer all week long that you would leave having encountered a person I know that is God's plan for your life. Well, we're going to continue on. Verse 2, And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone, and he sat on it. I love this imagery. An earthquake's kind of a big deal. They don't happen very often in Israel. And so Matthew explains, you know, it's an angel from heaven one who has been in the very presence of the sovereign of the cosmos, just pops into our reality, and the earth shakes. The creation amends it and says, boom, that's a big thing. 
And he rolls the stone away, and he wasn't trying hard. He rolls the stone away. Incidentally, you've heard this before, perhaps, but I want to say it again. The stone was rolled away not so that Jesus could get out. He was long gone by then, but so that these two women could come and see, so that they could come in. Now, you might remember at the end of chapter 27, the Romans had affixed a legal seal across the tomb entrance. And so when the angel moves the stone, he is violating Roman law. And I'm sure it worried him sick. He broke the law, and he was totally fine with that. But the text is actually very clear. The stone's not just rolled away. The stone is moved to the side and flipped over on its side, and the angel is sitting on it. As a demonstration of the control, the power, and the sovereignty of God, the tomb is open, and guess what? You can't close it back. You can try. Good luck with that. Because one who is the personification of lightning is sitting on it. Saying, oh, you want, to, you want to put the stone back? Yeah, I don't think that's going to work out so good for you. We cannot replace the stone. He is risen. It's okay for you to say he's risen indeed, because he is. So let's try that again. He is risen. There we go. This angel who was seated upon it, his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing was white as snow. And for fear of him, and the guards trembled and became like dead men. These are professional battle-hardened soldiers, professional executioners. They themselves, no doubt, had been put in charge of suppressing rebellions and insurrections in Judea. They had killed people by the dozens. And yet, so spectacular was this sight that they fall over as though dead. Now, that's interesting. But the angel said to the women who apparently did not fall over as though dead. That'll tell you something, lads. Pay close attention there. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. Hey, the one that you seek, I know why you're seeking him. But I want you to not miss, the angel must have been loving this. He gets to announce that he's not dead. He's alive. His own creator, beaten, shamed, nailed to a tree, the offense of it all. But now he gets to, uh, to announce that Jesus is not dead. He's alive. He says, he is not here, for he has risen. As he said, come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples. By the way, that's still the same message. Come and see, go and tell. Come and see, go and tell. You don't have to be a PhD in doctrine or theology. You just have to say, well, I don't know about all that. But the tomb is empty. He's alive. I don't understand all the other stuff about it. I don't have to. Here's what I know. He's alive. We come and we see and we go and we tell. The message has never changed for 2,000 years. Then go and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and they ran to tell his disciples. Now they've got a message. But in verse 9, And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. Hey, ladies! How did that go? Literally, he says, Kyrete. It is uh, graces at you. Such a great message. Jesus appears to them in his resurrection glory, and he says to them, graces. And they came up and took hold of his feet and 
worshipped him. No human being in Scripture ever permits worship, can ever accept or receive worship, except the one that can, the one that is, in fact, God. I'm reminded of a story in Exodus when Moses in the Old Testament and the elders of Israel go up the high holy mountain of God to come near to him, but all they can see where his feet would theoretically be is this molten sea of sapphire and terrifying fire, and they dare not approach. But here, these two women, these two insignificant lives, as it were, are able to grab a hold of Jesus and they worship. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers. Do Do you hear the grace in this? Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Let me just tell you, in complete and total transparency, if I had been betrayed, abandoned by those closest to me, unto the point of death, even death on a cross, and then I raised again and was alive, I just want you to know, that's going to be a very interesting elder meeting. When those guys who abandoned me, who just took off and left me alone, and I show back up alone, I'm going to have some words. But thanks be to God, that's not our Jesus. Go and tell my brothers that I will see them in Galilee. Now, all of the gospel writers have a different lens through which they're looking at this story. So to sort of help us get a full picture of all that's going on, keep your place there in Matthew 28 and flip over to the Gospel of John chapter 20. The Gospel of John chapter 20. We're going to sort of get this from John's perspective. They each have different ways of communicating. Matthew is trying to tell us Jesus is the rightful king, the son of David, but John's got a different point. John's gospel is Jesus is God. So you have Matthew that says Jesus is the king. Mark says that he is the suffering servant. Luke says that he is the man. John says Jesus is God. So in the Gospel of John, chapter 20 and verse 11, a slightly different angle of approach in reporting this story, a different camera angle, if you will. Verse 11, it says, But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she sees something incredible. And she saw two angels, one of my favorite passages. She saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain. And then John leaves no detail unreported. One at the head and one at the feet. So don't get wrapped around the axle. Matthew says there's one angel. John says there's two. Which is it? Perhaps there are three. I don't know. Maybe the one who was on the stone was really fast. I don't know. It doesn't matter. That's not the point. I think there was probably an angel sitting on the stone. And I think as Mary looks in, she sees two angels seated at the head and the foot where Jesus had lain. Why? Why are we told this? Last week on Palm Sunday, as we culminated one section of our study of the life of David, we talked about King David bringing in the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. And we talked about what the Ark of the Covenant was, this box made of acacia wood laid over in gold inside and out. And inside was the law of God, was the manna from God and the bud of Aaron to show resurrection. And above the Ark was a lid. You might remember what was on top of the Ark called the mercy seat were two angels, two cherubim, with their 
wings outstretched on either end. And it was there that God said to Moses, that's where the blood of the atonement must go. And I in my moral righteousness, in my code of holiness, will look through that blood and I will commune with you. The angels are showing up in the tomb to say, don't you see, the mercy seat is finished. This is where Jesus had been and the two angels were in his presence. To say, the atoning sacrifice is finished. God approves. He accepts it. No, no longer two golden cherubs fastened by human hands. No, two actual angels fashioned by God himself. And God receives it. The mercy seat is finished. John continues, to tell us, to remind us that the resurrection is a recreation. He says in verse 11, she wept and stooped to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. She's thinking grave robbery. She's thinking tomb desecration. Her injury just got insulted. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Sounds a little bit like Marlon Brando in a streetcar named Desire, right? Woman, why are you crying? Don't think that's how it was, but this passage has always been confusing to some because we want, we need our Jesus to sort of be cute and cuddly, caring and compassionate. And woman, why are you weeping? Doesn't sound very compassionate but it's because John is telling us something. Jesus is in a garden and she mistakes him for a gardener. The very first gardener, incidentally, in our Bible was one called Adam and he was in a garden. Jesus says, woman, why are you weeping? She said to him, um, she did not know that it was Jesus. Whom are you seeking, supposing him to be the gardener? She said to him, Sir, if you had carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. And I wonder if you've ever heard him say your name. Not, not audibly, more than likely. But have you ever heard that call on your life? He says to her, Mary. And as soon as she heard that, she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Do you see what's happening? The resurrection is a recreation. In the Garden of Eden, in Genesis, we're told that the side of Adam is opened as he goes into a death-like trance. And from that death, a woman is produced. And the first thing that Adam says to her is woman. And then later he names her Eve. But the resurrection is a recreation. The first thing that Jesus says to Mary is woman. And then he names her Mary. He gives and imparts identity. The resurrection of Jesus is not just a dead guy that came back to life. It is a fulcrum point of all history. It is a redemptive recreation. This is the thrust of John. Verse 17 Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. I love the inclusion. He calls them brothers. My God and your God. My Father and your Father. I know that you didn't have the, the lead in your pencil to stick around and take one for the team. I know you didn't, but I did. 
And because of that, you get to share in the fatherness and the godness of my God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Now then, flip back, if you would, to Matthew 28. We'll wrap up that piece, that passage. Matthew 28 in verse 11. Now we're going to see a great plot is hatched by the opposition. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city. These guys come to and they go, uh, this is going to end badly for us. And they told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers. And they said, tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. Which I think might be the greatest act of faith in all of the Bible. These soldiers knew that the elders and the priests were liars, swindlers, crooks, and cheats. And yet, hey, don't worry about it. We've got your back occupying Roman soldiers. Now, the whole plot, the whole story makes absolutely no sense. For starters, if you are a Roman soldier and you lose a prisoner or you fall down on your job, you die. If you go to sleep on the job, you die. So they had to really uh, have had a significant price to receive this bribe to do this thing because if they're found out, they're going to die. Not only that, the story is tell them that while you were asleep, the disciples came by night and took them. Well, for starters, that's admitting that you were asleep. That means you're going to die. And secondly, if you were asleep, how do you know who took them? The whole story makes absolutely no sense, and yet they take it. And Matthew goes on to tell us, this thing has been reported even to this day. So they took the money and did as they were directed, and this story has been spread among the Jews to this day, at least up until the point when Matthew writes this. Now then, verse 16 your Bible might have a little subtitle called The Great Commission. And that's good and that's right, but we have to remember that Matthew is writing one long story. Right after verse 15 comes verse 16. What we're going to see in these last four verses of the Gospel of Matthew is Jesus' own commentary on the significance of his resurrection. It's not just, hey, this thing happened, and now Jesus is going to go tell him to do some stuff. No, this is Jesus' own interpretation and commentary on his resurrection. So the 11 disciples, because Judas is not there, of course, went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. But some doubted. I think this might be my favorite verse in the Bible. Like, there's no question that Jesus was alive, that Jesus was then dead, that he was in the ground three days, and that he was alive again in a resurrection glorious body. Like, he just showed up to them several times. And yet some of them went, I don't know. I don't know. Could you send that to my phone? I'm going to watch that YouTube video of him. I, yeah, I, I don't, I'm just not so sure. They worshiped. They were legitimate. And yet there was still, because they're human beings, and yet they were still doubting. I think mostly what they were doubting is they could not believe that the, the message was now going to be given to them, left in their hands. The most important message in all human history, and it's left to these 11 losers. Verse 17, they doubted. And in verse 18, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is such good news. The one that loves me so much that he was willing to die in my place, 
is now in charge. See, that's great news. The one who loves me so much that he's willing to die innocently for that which I did is also the ruler of the universe. All authority, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. This is why Stephen in Acts chapter 7, as he's being stoned to death for his testimony, looks and he sees Jesus. He says, oh, throw the rocks because the one that loves me so much he was willing to die is now in charge. He's at the right hand of the Father. Jesus comes and says, I am the executive branch of the kingdom of heaven and I've got a job for you to do. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. In other words, death is not the end. Jesus is. Because Easter is a funeral for death. And now those who believe have no need of fear of death. Jesus says, while you live, don't you understand? I'm in charge and I'm with you. And when you cross through that final portal of death, it's not a separation, it's a reunion. When you live, I am with you. When you die, you're with me. He can never leave nor forsake. You see, because Easter is a funeral for death. So what do we take away from this? How does this apply to our lives today? I, just, I, wanna, I wanna reiterate that I understand that death is a real pressing concern for many people who have fear and certainty and doubt about the end. I love the way Andrew Peterson puts it. He says, we all have tombs that await us, open-mouthed and hungry for our bones, but the author of life lies there in our stead. So perhaps you're here this morning and you go, you know, I've heard some of this before and yeah, I don't know. I have some questions. As I have prayerfully prepared this week, I want to try to proactively address some of your questions and objections in advance. So if you'll allow me, three quick portions, three quick principles. The first is this, the resurrection is possible. Because generally, when I'm speaking to people who are not believers, they go, wait a minute, come on, is that even possible? Which is not really a question. It is saying, come on, that's not even possible. And I hear it all the time. And I just want you to know that the resurrection is possible. People get hung up on this and they say, wait a minute, that's not possible. And remember, I'm not talking about someone who just has a near-death experience. I'm not even talking about somebody like poor Lazarus who lived, he died, that sucked, he lived again, and then he died again. That was a bad day, part two. I'm not even talking about that. I'm talking about one who lived, who died, who's been raised to walk and will never taste death again. People say, come on, is that even possible? It's just, it's just not possible. And I say, how do you know? On what grounds can you possibly say that? And here's what I'll tell people. If there is such a thing as God, then we must allow for this God to be powerful enough to be a creator God. And if he's powerful enough to create, then he is powerful enough to resurrect a human life. This is just simple reason and logic to go along with what our Bible says, that Jesus is alive. If you will at least concede that there is a God, that he is powerful enough to create, whether you think he did it in seven days or 14.6 billion years, whatever. If there is a God powerful enough to create, then you have to concede that this God is also powerful enough to resurrect a human life. And you might say, well, why hasn't it happened since or before? Because there's only one son of God, we would say. It only had to happen once. That's all it took. 
But if, on the other hand, there is no God, if you say in your heart, there is no God, then everything that exists simply happened. And so now you're stuck. Because that means that anything can happen, which means the resurrection could also happen. Do you see? If there is a God, then some things are possible and some things are not possible. If there is no God, then anything is possible. See also the resurrection of Jesus. So what's it going to be? I will contend philosophically, reasonably, and rationally, the resurrection of Jesus is possible. Not only that, the scriptures have an idea that we as human hearts are going to encounter that, which is why I think Matthew 28, 17 is there. They worshiped and some of them doubted. I've heard it said week after week after week, if I could just see a sign or a wonder, then I would believe. If I could see a miracle, I would believe. And I want to tell you that the message of scripture is consistent and clear. No, you won't. Not a single time in Scripture does a single human soul come to faith because of a sign or a wonder or a miracle. Not once. In fact, the only miracle that is recorded in all four Gospels is Jesus' feeding of the 5,000. Everybody agrees. And you would think that many would come to faith because of Jesus' feeding of the 5,000. No. The next morning, he doesn't feed them breakfast, and they try to kill him by stoning him. They didn't want a Savior. They wanted a parlor trick. They wanted a free breakfast. Not a single sign or wonder brought anybody to faith. The disciples on the mountain see the risen Lord Jesus alive. And they doubt. Signs and wonders and miracles do not bring a single person to faith. Faith brings a person to faith. The resurrection of Jesus is possible. My second point is this. The resurrection of Jesus, not only is it possible, it is historical fact. Just like there were no actual witnesses to the creation, neither were there any witnesses to the actual resurrection event of Jesus. I don't know exactly what happened when God, and we know that it was actually Jesus, said, let there be light. I don't know how that actually happened. I wasn't there. Perhaps that's a DVD that'll be in the library of heaven one day. I have no idea. I don't know what had happened, but there is no question that something happened. I don't know how it happened. I wasn't there, but there is something. There's not nothing. In the same way, there's no witness to know what exactly happened at the resurrection, but there's no question that it did happen. Everyone is on equal footing on this respect. The proof is in this text. He was attested to have been seen by many Many witnesses in that context and in that setting, and that constitutes legal fact. In the 50 days between his resurrection and his ascension, he is seen in nine different occasions. Now, let me just tell you, in any ancient court, whether it's Rome, Babylon, Assyria, Greece, Persia, or Egypt, in any ancient court, if you can produce seven witnesses, it is legal fact, airtight, ironclad. We're going to see several Hundred over nine separate appearances that the text documents, people that have seen Jesus, nine separate appearances after his resurrection. The first is Mary Magdalene in Matthew 28 and in John 20. He comes to this sorrowful, distraught woman. The second appearance to 10 disciples, these fearful men in John 20. He comes into a locked room and they're all huddled up and they're being quiet and they're freaked out. And he goes, peace, don't be afraid. And he just comes through apparently solid walls now because that's kind of awesome. That's his second appearance. Third, he appears individually to Thomas because Thomas says, yeah, I don't know. Unless I see it, I won't believe it. God does not say, Jesus does not say, I cannot believe your audacity and your arrogance. 
Now, that's what I would have done. He says, put your hands here. Test it and see. And Thomas responds by saying, my Lord and my God. The fourth appearance, he comes to Peter, this discouraged man who had, who had uh, denied Christ three separate times because of the accusations of a teenage girl. Now, having been a youth pastor before, I admit it, teenage girls can be terrifying. But Peter denies Christ three times, and three times Jesus restores him individually. James, his little half-brother, not James the disciple, James, his little half-brother, who was not a believer. He did not believe that Jesus was anything other than his older brother. He doesn't even come to the crucifixion. And so when Jesus is on the cross and he has to commit his mother to someone's keeping, he gives her to John, the disciple, because none of his siblings are even there. But Jesus gives a command appearance to his little half-brother, James. And this James ends up being the bishop of the church of Jerusalem. They call him Old Camel Knees because he prayed so much. They finally threw him off the top of the temple and beat him to death with garden tools because Jesus appeared to this guy. Next, he appeared, number six, to two men on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24, and he interpreted all the scriptures to them about himself. Seventh, he appeared to Peter and the rest of the guys who don't know what else to do. They just go back and start fishing, and they're not catching anything because that's what men will do. They'll try to go back to their own power, might, and understanding, and Jesus says, no, throw the net on the other side, and they catch every fish in creation, and they realize that it is Jesus Number eight, the eighth appearance, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus appeared at one time to 500 men, not counting women and children. 500. Now that's a big gathering. And Paul says, most of them are still alive. You can go and have coffee with them today and ask them. Now they're not alive today, but in Paul's telling, by 30 years later, they were still alive. Paul says, it is historical fact. And then finally, the ninth appearance to these disciples in Galilee in Matthew 28. And they still doubted. The resurrection of Jesus is, of course, possible. Not only that, it is historical fact. Which brings me to my third point. If it's possible and it's fact, then the resurrection changes everything. Since it is possible, since it is historical fact, and it is true, just, just for a second, just, just pause. What if you allowed yourself to actually believe that the story was true? I'm not saying that I'm inviting you to believe in something like the Chronicles of Narnia and that there's a giant lion walking around someplace or something like the Lord of the Rings where there's hobbits and dwarves and elves, as awesome as that might be. No, no, no. What if it was true that God became flesh? Just, just what if it's true that he became all of the sin of mankind, the innocent died for the guilty, and that he died, and that he was dead, and he was really dead, not mostly dead all day. He was dead, dead. And on the third day, he rose again. And he will never die again. And he is the first fruit, the promise that the resurrection is a recreation. It is a funeral for death. What if it was true? No, no, let it happen. What if it was true? Do you feel, do you sense perhaps a flicker of what that might just mean for you? What if it was true? What if this was a funeral for death and you did not have to fear that ever again? But not only that, every day in the meantime in the living would be characterized by peace and by joy. We believe that he is alive and that we have been redemptively recreated because of the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And so all that we want to do, all that we want to be about here in this place is to come and see and go and tell. The people that believe that Jesus is alive 
are, in a sense, themselves open tombs. That Jesus is alive. They are the proclamation. And there's no closing up that tomb again. Perhaps my favorite passage on this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 20. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, it says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. This is the Apostle Paul telling the church in Corinth, that's Greece, that's in Europe, Western civilization. And so he's being very reasonable and philosophical about it. Jesus is alive. It is historical fact. The first fruits from those who have fallen asleep. He is alive and he will never die again. And that means that it is just a foretaste. All of us who die one day will live again. For as by a man, that's Adam, came death, by a man, that's Jesus, has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die. And let me just tell you what Paul is saying. If you are not in Christ, you are in Adam. I'm sorry, there is no being in Steve or Sheila. They're not in the text. You are either in Adam or in Christ. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, he is alive. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ will live again as well. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. You see, Easter is a funeral for death. Easter is where all the sad things come untrue. And so we are now free to live with no fear of death. And we live with the end in mind because we know how this story ends. And so if you're here this morning and you're not even sure how you got here, congratulations, but I'm going to invite you to believe. The resurrection of Jesus is possible. We contend and we believe that it is historical fact and that it changes everything. It is recreation. All of the dark, all of the chaos, all of the void, all of the catastrophe of our world is redemptively recreated one conversion at a time. And so I invite you to believe. Maybe above and beyond your capacity to explain it away or to agree with everything. But just go with me on this. Dare God to answer the question if it's true. Did he really send his son? I dare you to believe that Jesus is alive. Because if he's alive, therefore he must be king. But the good news is he loves us and he is good all the time. For the rest of us, perhaps between the Easter as we've fallen out of the, the rhythm of living with the end in mind and we begin to become fixated on our own end, on our own death, and we have forgotten that lo, as the King James says, he is with us even to the end of the age. And we have the opportunity to live the resurrection life now, the indestructible life. I'm so thankful that you join me this morning for this funeral for death. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for who you are, for what you have done in Christ to redeem us to yourself and to one another. And Father, if there is one this morning, if there are two this morning, if there are others this morning who do not know you, who are simply in Adam, would you move irresistibly by your spirit and lead them into a saving knowledge of your son Jesus, that they would step out of darkness into light, out of death into life, and would you speak their name to them above and beyond their capacity to understand, to accept or agree, 
Would you help them to believe that your son Jesus is alive? And for the rest of us, Father, would you remind us that we have no need to fear our own funeral because we have been to this one. While we live, as it were, in this long Saturday before your next arrival, help us to wait well, to come and see and go and tell. We pray all this, Father, the only way we can, in the power of your Spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you so much for being with us this Easter Sunday morning. I'm going to ask you to stand for a word of benediction, and then we will be dismissed. This is going to come to us from the little book of Jude, Jesus' other little half-brother. His closing doxology goes like this. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed. Happy Easter. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.